Beloved congregation, boys and girls, imagine yourself to be in the camp of Israel, and you would be standing in the opening of your tent, and you would be seeing a man walking towards the tabernacle with an animal at his side. Everybody knew what that meant. They knew that that man had been convicted by the law of Moses, that he had transgressed God's law. But he also understood that God had provided a remedy for his sin, an appointed remedy. And so according to God's revealed will, he made his way to the tabernacle. And then an amazing event took place. So what happened is that that guilty Israelite who had sinned, he would place his hands on the head of that animal, that animal that was going to take his place. And by putting his hands on the head of that animal, he was, as it were, symbolically transferring his guilt upon the head of that animal. And once that happened, the priest would then take the animal. And instead of the Israelite dying, which is what he deserved, because the wages of sin is death, instead of the Israelite dying, that animal died in his place. The blood of that animal would flow. That animal would be consumed by the fire of the altar that symbolizes the wrath to which we have provoked God by our sins. And then the priest, in God's name, would say to that man, your sin is forgiven. And that man would walk away and realize that even though he had sinned against God, that he went home as a man who was reconciled with God. Because the amazing thing is, That the God against whom we have sinned has provided the remedy for sin. And so this happened over and over again. And by means of this, God wanted to teach the people of Israel the foundational truth of his word that salvation is on the basis of substitution. And so boys and girls, I know, I would hope that you would understand that that animal was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come in the fullness of time. Because ultimately, that animal was not able to take away the sins of that man. The blood of that animal ultimately could not accomplish anything. And yet God pardoned that Israelite in anticipation of what would happen in the fullness of time. When the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, would be the substitute for sinners. And that whole wonderful sacrificial system came from the very heart of God congregation. That whole system was designed by a God who delights in mercy. It was designed by a God who was ready to pardon the sinner who takes refuge to the way which he has ordained in his only begotten Son. 
and that marvelous truth of substitution, which Luther so fondly called that blessed exchange, that holy exchange, to which Paul refers when he says that Christ, though he was rich, for our sake became poor so that we, who are utterly destitute, that we could become a partaker of his riches. That glorious truth of substitution is set before us in what could arguably be called the most extraordinary and most profound statement about that substitution in all of Scripture. It is one, as Spurgeon would call it, it is one of the great texts of the Bible. So with God's help, we will briefly meditate on the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5, where we read God's Word in our text. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so with God's help, we are going to focus on this foundational truth. Christ made sin for us on our behalf. First of all, we will consider the profundity of that truth. Utterly profound, that says, He made Him, His only begotten Son, to be sin. Not just a sin offering, but to be sinned. He made Him to be sin. Secondly, the perfection of this glorious truth of this sin offering, because the words added are so, are so significant, who knew no sin, who was utterly removed from sin, who was not tainted by sin in any way, the perfection of this offering. And then thirdly, the purpose, because the second, the second clause of this text is what we call a purpose clause. The word that is a powerful word in Greek that means for the purpose of, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the profundity, the perfection, and the purpose of this amazing sin offering. This text is preceded by this astounding statement by the Apostle Paul that God in Christ has been reconciling the world unto himself, in which he sets before us God's sovereign and eternal good pleasure, the wonder of reconciliation. Of course, the word reconciliation implies that there is hostility between the two parties, also in our human relationships. When two parties are at odds with one another, when there is hostility between them, they need to be reconciled. And congregation, you know that we as sinners, that this world of which the apostle is speaking, this world symbolizes that horrendous enmity towards God that characterizes fallen man, who by nature lives in hostility towards God, 
The carnal mind is enmity towards God. And then to, to read that that world that provokes God to wrath, that world which is worthy of judgment, that world that is populated by fallen sons and daughters of Adam, who by nature live in rebellion towards God, that God was in Christ reconciling that world to himself. What a statement that is, congregation, about the character of God. How that confirms that even though we fell in Adam, even though we turned our back upon God, God did not change. God's character did not change. And it's precisely because God is a God of love that he has eternally purposed to bring about that reconciliation. He has eternally purposed to pave the way whereby fallen human beings, fallen sinners could again be restored in his favor, could be brought back to himself. That's why in the gospel, we literally hear the heartbeat of a triune God. In the gospel, God so gloriously unveils who he is. He unveils to us that he has found a way which is entirely consistent with his being, a way in which by no means he contradicts himself. He has found a way whereby he, who is the eternal Holy One, who can by no means clear the guilty, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, he has found a way whereby sinners can be returned to his bosom in a way that he has ordained, a way that he has thought out. And Paul realized that God had given to him and to all of his servants that ministry of reconciliation. And this morning we see the visible evidence of that. This is a visible reminder of that God has been reconciled in Christ. And he has committed unto us his ambassadors. He has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Oh, God knew that obstacles had to be removed from his side. He knew that as a holy God, he could have no fellowship or communion with a sinner. Sin, congregation, we have no idea how utterly abhorrent your sin is in the sight of God. How ugly and how vile sin is. And therefore, in order for this God against whom we have sinned, in order for this God to be able to be gracious to us, in order for Him to be able to manifest His love towards us, in order, for, uh, in order for him to bring us back to himself and to restore us in a love relationship, that great and ugly obstacle of sin had to be removed. 
because sin separates us from God. And thanks be unto God. That is precisely what God has done. And that's why in our text, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sets before us this extraordinary truth, which is so profound that our human words are so inadequate to begin to express what Paul was moved to write. He, he, the eternal triune God, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The only possible remedy to reconcile sinners to himself, the only way we could be restored into his favor, if his God would give the ultimate gift, if God in his Son would give himself, because in his Son, God came to this world, to this sin-infested world. And the Father knew that the only way the ugly obstacle of sin could be removed is by sending forth his sin, his Son, and to make him to be sin for us. And in the original text, the words to be are not actually there. That's why in our Bible they're in cursive. So he hath made him sin for us. Think about that for a moment. Not just a sin offering. Yes, he was. He was appointed to be the ultimate sin offering. He was appointed to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But this text says more than that. He made him to be sin for us. What that means, congregation, or what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christ became a sinner. Far be it from that. For that would have disqualified him. But as our mediator, as our substitute, he became so totally identified with our sin. God imputed your and my sin to him. And so God treated him as if he were a sinner, though he was not a sinner. God treated him as the most guilty man that had ever walked upon the face of the earth. And dear believer, just think about your life. Think about all your ugly, secret sins that God knows. And to reflect on that should humble us greatly. But to think that God made him to be sin, not just for the ugly sins of your life, but for the sins of this vast, innumerable multitude, all of that came down upon his head. He became totally identified with sin, without being a sinner. And therefore he became the ultimate object of his father's wrath. He became, as it were, a lightning rod in our place. You know what a lightning rod does? A lightning rod protects a home. And so when lightning strikes, rather than consuming that home, 
It'll strike the lightning rod. And the home is spared. So Christ became that lightning rod in our place. And the, and the, and the, the lightning of God's wrath struck him on Calvary's cross. Struck him to such an extent that in bitter agony, as you well know, God's beloved Son, the Son of His bosom, the Son of His Father's delight, that Son cried out in bitter agony, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And our text answers that question in a most wonderful way. Oh, this is what Isaiah was meant when he wrote in verse 10 of that famous chapter 53, inspired by the same Spirit. Yet, yet, and in the preceding verses, the sinlessness of this sacrifice was emphasized, yet it pleased God to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Congregation, this table is the visible communication of that profound word yet. These signs, that broken bread and that, and that shed wine says yet. It pleased God to bruise him, to bruise him on our behalf. Zechariah prophesied of this in chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Oh, he made him. Oh, what must it have been for the father who so infinitely loved his son, that father who declared on several occasions, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For that father in your place, dear believer, on your behalf, to make him sin in our place. For us, two simple words, but so extraordinarily precious. Oh, dear believer, for your sake, because the Father was purposed to save you. He was purposed to redeem you. Because he has eternally chosen you in this Christ. He has eternally given you to this Christ. And therefore, in the fullness of time, he sent that Christ to the accursed cross to be made a curse in your place in order that you could be redeemed, that you could be reconciled with the God against whom you have sinned. Oh, for us. There you have the wonder of that blessed substitution. For us, God imputed your sin in all of its vileness, in all of its ugliness. He imputed your sin to him. For us. Oh, what a contrast between him and between us. 
For us, covenant breakers. For us, enemies. For us, rebels. For us, who are utterly void of all righteousness. Oh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Daniel prophesied of this when he said, After score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Not because he was a sinner, but because he was made sin as our substitute in our place. The Lord's Supper, dear believer, the Lord's Supper wants to emphasize this to you, that he did that for you, for you. That's why when I distribute the elements, it's so personal. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. Oh, Christ is so desirous, dear people of God. He is so desirous that you would fully understand and grasp who he is. That you would grasp what he has done on your behalf. That you would grasp that it is this desire that you would appropriate that by faith. That you would rejoice in that astounding reality. That his body was broken and his blood was shed for you in your place on your behalf. Oh, he hath made. And the tense in Greek stresses the fact that this is an irreversible fact. That's what the Lord's Supper signifies and seals, an irreversible fact. Oh, this means that God has been propitiated. That's what this tells us. What does that fancy word mean, propitiated? God has been satisfied. His claims have been satisfied. His wrath has been quenched. Someone has defined propitiation as a wrath-ending sacrifice. And so when firemen are called to a fire, they have to propitiate that fire. And when they are done, they have accomplished propitiation. The fire has been quenched. He has made an irreversible fact. And this testifies that in this Christ, in this blessed substitute, God has achieved everlasting, everlasting restoration in his favor. That's why here we have the visible evidence that because of that sacrifice, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And how blessed it is, we have to be brief here, that it adds who knew no sin. Why is that so significant? Well, without it, we would not grasp the wonder of it. It needs to be understood that he did not suffer because of his own sin. Had he been a sinner, he would have been disqualified. But he was the Lamb of God without blemish, who knew no sin. Sin was utterly foreign to him. 
That's what we needed. A sinless substitute. That's why the apostle wrote to the Hebrews, for such a high priest became us. Such a, we need a high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And that's precisely who he is. Jesus could say to the Pharisees, which of you convinces me of sin? John 8 verse 46. And Peter writes in his epistle, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 John 3 verse 5, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Oh, thanks be to God that he knew no sin, thereby underscoring how fully and completely qualified he was to be the Lamb of God. That's why he was able to live a perfect life. A life that we cannot live. That's why he was able to make a perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice that we could not make. And by his active and passive obedience, he merited that flawless righteousness that God requires. That flawless righteousness without which we cannot be reconciled to God. That's the point I've been making the past few weeks. Why is it that the Spirit shows us our spiritual poverty? Why does He cause us to mourn over our sin? Why does He bring us in the proper place before God as a meek sinner? All to teach us that we need the righteousness secured by this Savior. All to realize that we are void of that righteousness. To realize that we cannot be reconciled to God unless we have a righteousness that we don't have of our own, a righteousness outside of ourselves, a righteousness which alone can make us acceptable in the sight of God. And that's the thrust of this passage. That is precisely what Christ has secured. And as Bishop Ryle so simply said, Christ has secured that righteousness for us. He has secured that salvation by his doing and his dying. His doing and his dying. By his active obedience and by his passive obedience. And that leads us to that wonderful purpose clause. In order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We, we was Hugh Martin and also Matthew Henry so profoundly comment, we who have no righteousness, we who are void of all righteousness, we who are utterly incompatible with God, we of whom Scripture says that even our righteousnesses about as filthy rags. Oh, the wonder that we, fallen sons and daughters of Adam, we, transgressors of God's law, that we, we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And again, what this focuses on 
is that the amazing truth of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that the righteousness which we have lost in Adam, the righteousness which we utterly lack, that God in his Son has provided that righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. That in the preaching of the gospel also to sinners, that God offers to us the righteousness that he requires. A righteousness that alone is acceptable in his sight. And this Lord's Supper is a reminder again of that wonderful reality. The wonderful reality that that sacrifice has merited for you, dear believer, that righteousness which God desires. And the rending of the veil and the open grave are God's endorsement of that righteousness. The warranty that he has fully accepted the sacrifice of his only begotten son. And it is that righteousness which God freely and graciously imputes to every believer, every sinner who by grace puts their trust in this Christ, in this precious Christ. God will impute to us that righteousness that he has merited by that perfect sacrifice. What does that mean again? Mean that God will credit the righteousness of Christ to our bankrupt sinner's account. We who have no righteousness. And God credits it to our account. It's like a man who had to declare bankruptcy. And there's a very generous man who deposits into his account everything he needs to pay his creditors. And so the creditors are paid. The demands are satisfied. Not because of what he did, but because of the person who credited everything he needed to his account. That's what Christ did. That's what God has done, dear child of God. He has imputed to your account that blessed righteousness. So Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 22, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. This is the privilege of all who believe. This is the privilege of every believer. Even if you are a young believer or you are a weak believer or you are a struggling believer. If by grace you have taken refuge to that Christ, if you with a trembling hand have touched the hem of his garment, God has justified you. God has imputed to you that righteousness. That righteousness that is of God, that has its origin in God. That righteousness with which the Father is so infinitely well pleased. And then on the basis of that imputed righteousness, God has declared you righteous. How amazing. So God first makes us righteous and then he declares us righteous on the basis of that imputed righteousness. That's the astonishing truth of justification by faith. So we need to wrap this up. 
And so, my dear congregation, what this text means is that in Christ, you are reconciled with God. In Christ, there's nothing between God and you. In Christ, God can embrace you freely in the everlasting arms of his love. In Christ, and God views you always in Christ. Oh, we have to learn that. Congregation, when he imputes that righteousness to us, from there on in, he always views us in Christ. He always views us in light of that righteousness. That's why God can say of us what he could say of Israel. Even though they were ready to fornicate in the wilderness with the Midianites. He says to Balaam, I see no sin in my Jacob. And I see no transgression in my Israel. That's the wonder of it all. God views us always in Christ. And will always treat us as such. And that's what Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians 1. He has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. That's it. Accepted in the beloved. That's what this blessed table reaffirms. Accepted. Not in anything of yourself, but accepted in the beloved. That's why Paul could say so boldly in Philippians 3, when he spoke of his own righteousness as manure, as dung. Oh, he says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith, the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Oh, accepted in the beloved. That's exactly the opposite of what we deserve. The opposite of what we deserve. When we gather around this table, there will not be a single person here who deserves to be here. There's only one reason why we can be here. That's because of him. Accepted in the beloved. Because on Calvary's cross, God dealt with his son opposite to what he deserved because he knew no sin. But he suffered in your place. And therefore God, and that's what grace is all about. Grace is not just undeserved and forfeited favor. The grace of God means that God bestows on us the opposite of what we deserve. That's what this table witnesses to. The opposite of what we deserve. And how that should humble us deeply, and yet how it it should cause us to rejoice greatly. That's why Paul begins chapter 8 of Romans. Therefore, in light of that, therefore, in light of who Christ is, in light of the fact that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, therefore, there is now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. All because of this precious Christ. So as we gather at this table, to do this in remembrance of him. May the words of the Apostle Paul resonate 
within our own hearts. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, for having made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we who know no righteousness, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen.